Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about antitrust. Uh, this is something that's been in the news in a variety of ways recently. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a smarty pants term. So you hear a lot about it. And people may not maybe only vaguely aware of even some of the basic concepts involved. So to discuss that with us, we have Ashley Baker, who is the policy director for the Committee for Justice. Uh, and uh, Committee for Justice is also part of a coalition called the Alliance on Antitrust uh, that advocates for the continuance of the consumer welfare standard of antitrust. We'll, we'll talk about what exactly that means in, in a minute. But first, uh, Ashley, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And I should also say that uh, way back in the day, uh, we at R Street gave you your start, so to speak. Uh, so you, you're a former, former R Streeter, uh, now gone out into the world to do brilliant things. Uh, during my start, yes. Not my first start, but one of my starts. Yes, it was great. So you guys do great work. Yes, I, I, I uh, so since this is an audio only podcast, you couldn't see the air quotes when I said, when, when, that I put around the words, your start, but uh, we'll, 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 claim it. we'll claim it. So I think maybe it would be useful for some of the viewers that are not in the weeds in this issue to just talk a little bit about what antitrust is. What's the idea? You know, we've, we've had uh, this law, the Sherman Antitrust Act for over a hundred years. It's a whole area of law. It's very specialized, very important, has something to do with business and monopoly, but what is it? What's the what's the point of antitrust? This is a subject of debate, and this is kind of, you know, this is a debate that has been going on for the past 175 or so years, um, sorry, 130 or so years, um, is what is the point of antitrust laws? You have the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act and um, also the FTC Act, and the, the text is pretty short and vague. Um, so over the years, you know, what exactly the goal of antitrust really should be is something that has had to evolve in various ways through a lot of economic and legal learning and process. But at the end of the day, it's really to protect the consumer from actual harm, um, not to um, protect the the competition from other competitors. And that's a big misconception. Um, I think there's a lot more to say right now about what antitrust law is not. Um, and the public debate really is guided by a lot of these things that really aren't antitrust, um, that are problems completely divorced from the competitive process. But antitrust is uh, being seen as kind of a tool because there's this broader presupposition that big is bad. So one thing that antitrust is not is not a tool to use to you know keep companies from becoming too big or from becoming too powerful. Yeah. So I, I actually that, that was a trick question there. Uh, so sorry about that. But you know because you're right, there is there has been for for decades and decades kind of a dispute about what the overriding principle should be should it i guess uh my my vague recollections from law school is that if you were to go back to the 60s and 70s uh courts and scholars and whatnot thought of it more in terms of 
you know, pre pre preventing uh, a single or a small number of businesses from controlling all of a market or doing something, you know, getting too big, as you say. And then there was that kind of revolution in thinking led by Robert Bork uh, saying, I guess the, the tagline that I remember is that antitrust is about uh, protecting competition, not competitors. You may have alluded to that in, in your answer there. So how are those how are those two things distinct? Because you would think that you know how can you have competition without competitors, and if you have competitors, you should have competition. So what what is kind of the practical difference between those two different ways of looking at it? Well, to go back to your point, by the way, about um, antitrust and law school, that reminds me a lot of something that Justice Scalia actually said during his um, Supreme Court confirmation hearing during 1986. He said, in law school, I never understood antitrust law because as I later found out in reading the writings of those who do I'm paraphrasing here. Um, of those who do now understand it, I should have un I should not have understood it because it didn't make any sense then. Um, and that was, you know, when Justice Scalia was was in law school, um, and that was before, you know, before the revolution of the '70s in antitrust scholarship and before Bork's um, antitrust paradox. So you're right; it didn't make much sense then, um, and it's starting to not make a lot of sense now, or at least um, a lot of the the arguments are and proposals are not making any sense. Um, as to your question about the competitors and the competitive process, I guess one analogy is, um, you know, the European system uh, um, is very different in how they deal with their antitrust laws. They, they do um, more so protect the competitors from other competitors. Um, whereas in the United States, we protect the consumer from um, from the harms to the competitive process that harm the consumer. So it's more, focused about on those harms whereas you know you have another system in which you know you can you can protect a company from competitors but then you know, you're ending up with one entrenched company and it's really self-defeating um and it really leads to a lot of regulatory capture as well so it's more about the broader competitive process and it's about how that process affects the consumer directly yeah the uh other Thing that I remember from law school about antitrust, and this will this will kind of complete, you know, exhaust my knowledge of the subject almost. But uh, I do remember a, a joke uh, about the old system, which was that if if one company had higher prices than their competitors, uh, that was evidence of market power, and so that was a violation of antitrust. If they had lower prices than their competitors, that was evidence of uh, dumping or, you know, uh, uh, anti-competitive practice there. And if they had the same price, that was evidence of collusion. So, uh, you know, maybe that's kind of part of the reason why that approach was abandoned is that you can always, anything that happens can be described as being uh, nefarious at, at a certain level of abstractness. So there's um, the discussion of how if when economists um, look for a problem, um, they find a monopoly problem. Um, and, you know, that's one way of justifying those three ways are, you know, each ways of justifying it one way or another. And, you know, usually kind of at the sub, you know, surface level of that, there are other non-competition problems that are trying to be corrected by, you know, looking at the price and saying, aha, well, they offer lower prices, that's a monopoly, or they offer higher prices, or whatever the case may be. 
Um, you know, in the current debate, we have a lot of issues surrounding, for example, data privacy and and workers' rights and equality and content moderation, you name it. Um, those are kind of the sub-issues that are being now um, now kind of surfacing in the antitrust debate that aren't anti that aren't antitrust problems and shouldn't be you know resolved with antitrust law and that's a bigger issue that we're facing right now is using antitrust to remedy problems that are completely irrelevant to antitrust law let's talk about that a little bit because i don't i don't think that in and in and just sort of as a i guess a disclaimer uh lone star policy institute did join the alliance on antitrust so you know we certainly believe in 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 this cause but let's let's talk a little bit more about what the proper use of antitrust enforcement would be, because you know the the idea isn't to abolish antitrust. There is a proper role for it. There are areas where there are anti-competitive uh, practices that should be that there should be discipline, that there should be uh, some type of enforcement on. Can you kind of give some examples of where there is proper enforcement, and then we can kind of talk about where. Maybe it's being politicized and some of the standards are up for debate. But, you know, how, do, how does the process work? Who actually enforces uh, antitrust claims? Who has the right to um, bring a claim? Uh, walk through that a little bit. And what are some of the, the common fact patterns other than sort of this big moment of talking about breaking up big tech? What's sort of the day to day antitrust world really look like? Well, the question of who are the enforcers is uh, particularly a, a messy one right now because there's a lot of overlapping jurisdiction. We can get to that in a minute. A lot of the common, you know, antitrust cases that are are valid antitrust cases. And you have price fixing cases. A lot of these are really boring cases and they don't get any attention. And you had one in the poultry industry recently. Um, and a lot of them are pretty cut and dry. Um, and then there's also the issues issue of mergers and merger review and that's an interesting one because a lot of people just like to cite um, the fact that not many mergers are challenged as evidence of lack of enforcement of our antitrust laws. But if you look at it too, there's this other aspect where a lot of mergers don't actually happen to begin with because they know that it might be challenged. So that's our laws working in a way that's a lot less visible is the behavior that it prevents. Um, you know, antitrust law or any laws that meant just to be punitive, it's also a deterrent to behavior. Um, that that's kind of is the point there. So it, it's hard there are a lot of cases, like I said, that are not um, not exactly these big tech related cases that don't get public attention and, or don't actually make it to court. A lot are settled outside of court. So we never really hear about them. As of enforcement, we have interesting issues there in terms of the FTC and the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. Both have authority to enforce our antitrust laws. Um, and we see right now we have two. We have each agency having running two different investigations on tech companies. They kind of had to split up the companies to investigate them, which is a little bit ironic if you are claiming that companies are monopolies and there's so many that you have to split them between agencies. Um, but the, my point really is that it's it's led to a lot of bad outcomes, and sometimes that the FTC and the DOJ have not arrived at the same conclusion. And you saw that the Qualcomm case, for example, which was actually just decided last week, um, the FTC and the DOJ end up on opposite sides of things there. And that, that's not the first time that that has happened. And that also does undermine our ability to enforce antitrust laws when they really need to be enforced when you have two agencies that 
are contradicting each other, then it really um, get undermines the rule of law and the purpose of those laws. I think one thing to point out, too, is that there's occasionally simply consent orders where there's a particular practice that's viewed to be anti-competitive and the corporation and the government will sort of come to terms and the and the comp, the corporation will simply say, OK, I'm not going to engage in that practice anymore. And, and I guess the reason I think that's important to, to bring up is. And I sometimes joke about this, about, you know, the, the response right now from from certain circles is break up big tech. And, and maybe there's you know a little bit of hyperbole there. But the reality is, uh, you know, antitrust law has more remedies than simply good old fashioned trust busting where, the you know, if there's any problem, we're just going to start breaking up your corporation. There's there's a it's a there's a lot more nuanced. And as uh, Josiah said, it's actually a pretty complex area of law that I think in the sort of the, the politics of the moment uh, really gets lost of just how, um, you know, that there is a full body of law, that it is complex, it's nuanced, and now we're trying to apply it to some some new areas. Um, but one of the things that is I was preparing for the show is reading a little bit on uh, from the Brookings Institute. Now, that would be a leftist center organization. Um, and one of the points that they made is, and I guess I would say this is sort of a, contrary to or a competing view of the consumer welfare benefit rule is they they say that um, in addition to consumer welfare the antitrust should be used uh, to combat income inequality what do you think what do you think of that view well that's certainly not a new argument um, and you know they didn't call that kind of that's the public interest view of antitrust or or hipster antitrust, as you would call it. And that takes us back to the 1960s and 1970s when when antitrust was used for a whole variety of things. And that's why this debate is so important right now, by the way, especially for conservatives, is because, like you said, there's a lot of history and there's a lot of nuance and people aren't looking at that. And they're not looking at what would be lost and how we got to where we are over the past 130 years. And in the 1960s and 70s, then, Antitrust was being used for a wide variety of socioeconomic purposes, and eventually we did arrive at the consumer welfare standard. That's what led to the consumer welfare standard was the need for this neutral underlying standard instead of just giving enforcers a roving mandate to use it for income inequality or environmental purposes or any other area of law. They tried to view antitrust as the remedy. Um, and that led to uneven enforcement. Um, courts were had uneven you know, decisions. I know, as Justice Potter Stewart said, the only the only consistency that he could find in antitrust litigation is that the government always wins, and that's not uh, not a good scenario. Uh, you know, we were talking about the consumer welfare standard, and one of the things that, that I thought about is. Uh, there's a certain idea of what that means to us, particularly as conservatives, of what we mean by by consumer welfare in the context of antitrust. Um, but for a casual casual listener, they may uh, think about the fact that we have progressives like Elizabeth Warren that often advance their agenda based on the idea of consumer protection. So at a at a high level. Um, What's can you kind of explain the difference between what we're talking about here as consumer welfare, maybe as a, as opposed to what progressives are talking about when they talk about consumer protection, obviously in a very different context. But I think conceptually it may be an important distinction. 
Well, conceptually, what the left and now what some on the populist right who want to break up big tech are talking about is using antitrust for a wide variety of socioeconomic purposes that are justified by protecting the consumers and then using antitrust improperly as the remedy for that. So what we have, you know, with the consumer welfare standard is more, it's a goal of the antitrust system itself um, around what rules of liability and procedural mechanism and presumptions are created. So it's more of a broader system and it's an underlying principle that allows the law to be applied consistently. And it's also, I think a lot of people don't give the consumer welfare standard enough credit for it's actually one of the bigger one of the biggest success stories of the conservative legal movement, I think. You know, we see every other area of laws, which is like tort law, has been completely ballooned by the left. You have you know, environmental law, product liability law, um, quality laws. It's all, all of that litigation has been controlled by by the left and their you know, social agenda. And we have antitrust law where we've actually managed to rein things back in over the past 40 years. And that's a lot to throw away. Yeah, it does seem to me that while you know if you read the legal decisions and analogy scholarly discussion or whatever antitrust it's mostly focused on economics whereas most of most of the uh, energy and motivation both on the left and right talking about antitrust these days i think really has to do more with political stuff Right. So, you know, on the right, for example, people are very uh, concerned about certain viewpoints being censored on social media, for example, or people being kicked off of social media. And what effect is that going to have on political campaigns or the broader political discussion? And then on the left, uh, you do have a little bit of that, too. Uh, with Elizabeth Warren and or whatnot trying to I think she wants she, she wants more people to be kicked off <laughs> but you also just have a general left-wing concern about the political power of large companies and influence on the political process uh, and you know I don't know if antitrust is necessarily the right vehicle to address those sorts of concerns but that really while occasionally someone will make a gesture towards economic arguments, uh, it mostly seems like what's driving people and the latest praise has to do with uh, with political stuff. Is that your yeah, sense? Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, I would say you're absolutely right. And if you look historically, too, the antitrust debate has often been kind of a microcosm of the broader political debate and other societal issues. I think a good example of that is the Microsoft investigations and the you know antitrust fervor of the uh, 1990s with um, with Ralph Nader, and he you know explicitly said that this no longer is going to be a wonky legal issue, but this is going to you know be political. And you see that now too for a completely different set of reasons. And you've seen this with Elizabeth Warren and um, you know with breaking up banks and her. Um, campaign against Wall Street and also saw it in the 1960s and 70s where kind of all of this began, but it does, the broader public debate does have its roots more in politics. And now you're seeing that also on the right, um, and they're, you know, very unhappy with these companies over 
decisions that these companies have made. And these are decisions too that I don't necessarily agree with as you know a business decision. I, I think that antitrust is absolutely not the right remedy for concerns over, for example, content moderation. It's also very, if we're talking about the political aspect of the debate, it's incredibly short-sighted to use it for, you know, to give enforcers this mandate to use it for whatever political purposes, because at some point your party will not be in power anymore, and that won't work out very well. I think on the right of centering, this is a huge strategic blunder to give in to populist antitrust. I mean, it's it's so bad, it's comparable, if not worse, than um, an analogy I've made recently, which is, you know, Harry Reid giving up the filibuster that did not work out very well for the Democrats. And for the right of center, it's going to be more or less the same, but it's also an issue too of just weaponizing the law for purposes other than what that law is, um, and for political purposes, which is something that conservatives traditionally have very much been against. So the, the, recently, you did have hearings where the heads of the four big tech companies. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. So they testified, and there was a lot of uh, strum and drag. Uh, what, what was kind of your takeaway from all of that? What was the, the what did we learn from that, if anything? Well, it certainly wasn't a productive hearing, nor was it designed to be. To be honest, it you know they dragged four CEOs of the of some of the four largest companies in the United States out in front of television to ask them a lot of questions and really it was an opportunity for a lot of the members of congress to air their grievances a lot of the questions weren't really questions um or designed to be the discussion really ended up not being about antitrust um whatsoever we had one republican member who um very directly said that um, antitrust law should be used for antitrust. Um, that was Representative Sensenbrenner. That was really great coming from him. Um, otherwise, there was a lot of talk about content moderation, mostly, and about anti-conservative bias, and about privacy, and about worker um, about inequality and um, workers' rights um, coming from the left. And also, those on the left have had the uh, same concerns as those on the right about content moderation, by the way. They've been complaining just as much. Um, and that's one thing that a lot of people don't point out. But the outcome of the hearing, I don't see, there wasn't really any content in the hearing that could lend itself to being relevant in a majority report by the House Judiciary Committee or any potential legislation. It was really far, you know, out of left center field. and. It really was meant, it seems, more for publicity. Now that, by the way, there are several members of the House Judiciary Committee who have been fundraising off of this directly, um, which is not surprising. But it was not about antitrust at all. It was about a lot of issues that are not antitrust, and that gets at the core of what we were just discussing about using antitrust as a convenient regulatory tool for other problems that people have. Yeah, so I know this is a little bit far afield, perhaps, but... If antitrust is not the proper vehicle for dealing with some of these content moderation or data privacy issues, uh, I mean, what is the what is the alternative? What, how should uh, our elected officials or other people, uh, public citizens, address these sorts of things if antitrust is not the right? area to go looking for an answer well legislation is exactly how they should be addressing it um 
well, whether or not they should pass legislation to do certain things, that's another conversation, but this should be addressed legislatively. And a lot of these issues that are being now kind of merged into the antitrust debate, it's that's happening as a result of legislative failures. We've had the debate over Section 230 for a couple of years now, and there's been a failure to make any progress, any serious proposals to reform 230 um, or amend the text. Um, I mean, there are probably ways in which Congress could you know, find a way to amend 230 that's not um, completely a publicity stunt or some sort of, you know, really radical proposal, but they've failed to do so. And they've failed to pass privacy legislation as well. Um, those, I mean, for two different reasons, I would say with privacy legislation, that debate's a little bit different. Um, it's not as much of the political football that the content moderation debate is, but this should be done by, by legislation and by potentially amending the statute. Right. So I guess from my point of view, that would probably look a little bit more like uh, you know, if we were to revisit to Section 230, that would be more along the lines of heightening um, the the standards, the requirements for social media platforms to moderate content and maybe to have clearer um, uh, appeals processes if they suspend someone or, or uh, you know, give more of a, a sense of an appeal process if you disagree with the way a, a social media platform were to, to operate and and, and how they may be viewed as censoring. But that would be very different than the tools that are available under antitrust. And I think that's sort of what you're alluding to. Right. And you, on one hand, you would clarify legislative text, for example, to make it more clear um, when these liability exemptions apply and what behavior exactly it's referring to. Um, there, there are quite a few, few points there in um, the, the text of 230 that are admittedly very vague. Um, and that's something that should be debated. This has absolutely nothing to do with antitrust, though. It's not a competition problem. This is um, that's you know, completely statutory, and that's something that Congress can go back and re and revise and resolve. And it's their job to do so. And is Congress not doing their job and using antitrust as a convenient regulatory tool? If they can rewrite antitrust laws to allow them to do that, then they have that tool. Yeah, on the legislative side of things, and I. I vaguely remember a time when Congress did pass legislation, so I guess it's still technically possible. Um, are there things, uh, legislative changes that need or that should happen in order to clarify standards or update things or change things? You know, do we need any? As you mentioned, I think that you know the the Sherman Antitrust Act. I think it's like. Uh, less than a page. It may even be just one line <laughs> uh, as far as the statute goes. So, I mean, do we need legislation there to try and clear anything up? Or is it just a matter of courts applying case law and standards that have developed over time? It's a little bit of both. And that's why why antitrust law is so complex as well. Um, because it, you know, because like you said, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act are so incredibly short that it's kind of, its evolution over the years has been more, it's evolved, um, antitrust jurisdiction has evolved from being more textual, textual to, because it can't be textual, to more functional, and therefore it's kind of evolved through common law um, judicial interpretations. So the way that it, it was interpreted in, in the beginning, you know, obviously, did not work for the first you know, 10, 20 years after the um, passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So you have you know, the way in which it 
has evolved and um, that law grows by analogizing new situations to old ones. And then you have also Congress has updated things. You also have Congress um, providing that sort of guidance under which the law is going to be applied. So it's it's an issue of both. And there are some proposals out there right now in Congress that are particularly bad, actually. Um, and some of those is um, they the proposals are for bright line um, guidelines that would prohibit mergers, for example, above 10 or 20 percent market share across all inter um, industries. There's some other aggressive merger prohibitions. Um, one big proposal that has been floated has, is essentially inverting the burden of proof. Um, therefore, it is on the company to prove that they are not a monopoly, which is very much um, against kind of some of the core tenets of the American legal system. Um, I would say. And then there are also some um, that would allow antitrust exemptions for certain firms. And then there's also just politicizing it more generally and um, statements about moving away from the consumer welfare standard and towards um, that public interest sort of standard in which it can be applied for anything. I know Elizabeth Warren has had a bill out there that would do all of these things and move away from the consumer welfare standard. Amy Klobuchar has one as well, um, and hers is uh, particularly, they're both particularly radical, and they're both a radical departure from the way that antitrust law has operated over the, under, over the past 40 years. And I think because the debate has become so politicized and so high level, and people are angry about all of these other problems, they are more likely to not really evaluate those proposals as they should and evaluate the history of this. So let me just let's end by circling back a little bit because I introduced you saying that you were with the Committee for Justice and then also the Alliance on Antitrust. So, uh, what is the Committee for Justice, and what do, what do they do? So, the Committee for Justice is a nonprofit. We were founded in two thousand two, and we initially worked on judicial confirmations pretty exclusively, um, particularly during the. Bush administration um, during the during all the issues with uh, with his um, federal court nominees and the destruction of his nominees there and kind of have expanded beyond that. We focus on a lot of um, issues that are relevant to the Supreme Court and cases in the judiciary um, and also some administrative law because all these issues are kind of starting to intertwine um, the issues that affect the judiciaries and how our nominees are now going to be ruling on you know, cases that are related to antitrust and cases that are related to tech. And the administrative state is obviously a huge issue right now as well. And those have kind of become our issue areas um, over the past four or five years in terms of where the courts are heading as well. So you see, it seems kind of like an odd combination of issues to work on, but um, over the past few years, you've seen them really um, merge and combine and see how one affects the other. And Committee for Justice, we do a lot of we do a lot of writing on these issues. We write letters to Congress. We file amicus briefs um, in cases. We just filed one in a um, CFAA case. We filed one in Google versus Oracle recently um, in support of Oracle's position, actually. And um, we, we engage on most of the issues that are before the Supreme Court. And more recently, we have started a project. It's called the Alliance on Antitrust. And the Alliance on Antitrust is a coalition. It's a coalition of conservative and free market groups that are concerned about the 
broader principles uh, that are at stake here. And like I said before, what is being thrown away with a lot of these proposals to reshape antitrust law. It's a group that really cares about the rule of law and not applying antitrust law for purposes other than antitrust and really want to preserve Robert Bork's consumer welfare standard. It's something I've seen a need for for a long time. There are a lot of conservatives who are very much in disagreement with the populist position that we should just use antitrust as a hammer to solve all these other problems that conservatives have. And while we're not, we don't deny that there are some problems with these tech companies, it's that antitrust is not the solution to them. And a lot of conservatives are losing sight of conservative principles on when it comes to antitrust and um, are really taking positions that undermine the rule of law. So the point of the Alliance on Antitrust is it kind of shines some light on the issue and talk about what is at stake and the history of the antitrust law and why these solutions are really not good in the long term also for the market um, or for Republicans and Libertarians as well. All right. So our, our guest today has been Ashley Baker. Ashley, thank you very much. for Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.